welcome back to our teaching in the book of John. Now, last time we were here, we were dealing basically with the issue of Jesus's claim to be God. That is, he claimed to be equal with God. But all of this started with the healing of a man at the pool in Bethesda or a pool called Bethesda. And it was there that when Jesus healed this lame man, he told him to take up his bed and walk. And it was the Sabbath day. What's important to remember is Jesus knew it was the Sabbath day and he knew this would cause controversy in seeing the man carrying his pallet on the Sabbath day because of the Jewish belief at that time, unfounded belief and unscriptural belief that taking a bed from a private place or anything from a private pl from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath day was the breaking of the Sabbath. This was not the case. This was not the teaching in the law of Moses. Nevertheless, this was one of their teachings that they had. Now, if you didn't see my commentary or hear my commentary on these particular things, go back and look at chapter five. And there I make quite a bit of extensive commentary on some of the wrong Jewish beliefs, which we see in the New Testament called the tradition of the elders. All right. Or the law of the elders, things of that nature. But these were additions to the law and putting a hedge about the law. But enough said about that. So Jesus knew there would be a controversy concerning seeing these things. And this would, in another way, start up a conversation with Jesus and the people. The man didn't recognize Jesus at first. Jesus went back and made himself known to the man, gave the man a warning. The man returned back to those people, the Jewish people, the leaders, and told them that it was Jesus. And so we see now a persecution of Jesus because he was doing such things, healing, which also the Jewish leaders thought was improper to do wrong on the Sabbath day, but Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. And so with this conversation now engaged, and which is the reason why we see Jesus doing these things on the Sabbath day, that is healing of the man at the pool. Jesus made the response to their accusations about him working on the Sabbath day, my father. And this is what was key. Jesus claimed God to be his own father. And from the Jewish mindset, that means he was claiming to be equal with God. To be equal with God is to be God. And that's where we get into this a whole conversation that Jesus now has resulting from the healing. So Jesus continued on instead of him. This was key. This was key. Instead of Jesus backing down when they became very angry enough to kill him because he was claiming equality with God, he did not back down. Jesus began to give evidence, and this was the root of the section that we were talking about on the last video. That is evidence that he is God. And the evidence is, and we see this continue, Jesus would say, just as the Father, so as with the Son. So in, in the idea of that Jesus having equality with God, Jesus said, verse number 19, and we don't supposed to be going back through it that way, I do as the father do nothing that the father does that he does not empower the son to do. And I only do what the father does. One, that statement simply means 
I am equal with the Father simply because I do what the Father does. And then he talks about how the Father loves the Son and shows him the thing that he is doing. And then the Father will even do greater works. Second point, the Father loves the Son, but staying in the context. What? The Father will do even more things because what? You have an issue with me claiming to be equal with God. My father, equality with God, claiming to be God. And I'm saying to you, I do the same as God and God himself will give you even further evidence to back up my claim that I am God. And then he continues on to give evidence to simply say the father has power over life and death to give life and to resurrect the dead. And just like the father has this divine power and this divine power is only in the hand of God alone. Guess what? The son has this power. What is the third point even here? Even further evidence to back my claim that I have equality with God, that I am God. And then he even says that you believe and that and, and the you believe part is what I'm adding in simply because it was the Jewish belief that the father would judge mankind. But I tell you, uh, tell you the truth. I tell you a secret. The father will not judge any human being. The father has committed the judgment of mankind to the son. Why? For the purpose that the son may be honored in the same way that the father is honored. That is the fourth point, what? Of claiming equality with the God. I have the equality with God. I have the power of God. The father himself sanctions my statement that I have power with God. He bags me up. He will show you things that only he could do through me to show you that yes, the son is God. And then even again, the resurrection of the dead, the power to give life. These things are evidence of what? divine power. And just like the father has this power, guess what? So do I. The whole statement of all of this is equality with God. And then he finally finishes and talks about believing in him. That's verse number 24. And that is to hear his word. Now, the whole thing that we have to remember is remain in context. What is he talking about? What word? He's not talking simply about the general word that he speaks or all of his preaching. He is talking about God specifically being his father, my father, that he is the son of God. He has equality with God. That's his whole context of the thing. So therefore, believing in his word becomes the word that he declares about himself, who he is, son of God, son of man. Now, I don't have time to rehearse that every single time I go over that, but it's in. If you've been following my teachings in John, you know son of God refers to divinity. Son of man refers to humanity. But here the context is not so much as in his humanity. We saw that earlier in John when Jesus referred to himself being the son of man. But here the context is he is the son of God believing in who he says that he is son of God results in eternal life or in other words, simply salvation. Okay. Now, you know what? Let me stop there. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but that's simply a review of what we talked about 
earlier, but the context of all of this is his claim to divinity, his claim to divinity as a result of the healing and calling, telling the man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath day, that conversation that started about and Jesus making the claim of God to his own father. And that's when the Jews got hot, not simply because he was doing the miracles on the Sabbath day. That was bad enough, but he was calling God his own father doing what? Jewish mind, the scripture, making himself equal with God. And so what Jesus did in the following uh, part of it, the, the latter part of chapter five that we discussed last week was simply that he evidenced his claim to be the father from a factual point of view. He does what the father does. He has the power that the father had. The father himself would even back him up. And then the final principle state, you must believe his words concerning that he is God in order to have life. Now, enough done with that. Let's move to the final section of chapter five because it's too kind of long. But what we're going to continue with is this. Now that Jesus laid a foundational statement to back up his claim to divinity, now he gives a witness, the witnesses to his claim. And that is, and here's what you have to keep in mind, the witness to his person, those who says that Jesus of Nazareth is who he say he is. That is, he is son of God. He is son of man. Jesus is the Messiah. Those who witness to the person, Messiahship, and the claim of Jesus, to witness to the person of Jesus, is also to witness, to bear witness, to who he claims to be and the things that he says. So if you witness to Jesus, you are affirming the words of Jesus as well. His person, his words at the same time. Okay, so this is what he's going to go to now. He's going to move from his foundational presuppositions and giving those facts that he just gave us now to those who bear witness. We are in the same idea of his claim to be God. And so now Jesus sets forth such witnesses. Okay, remember, okay, done with that. When we left off in verse number 24, the whole point was believing and hearing his word has eternal life. Passing out, passing from what? Death to life. Passing from death to life. So what we see here at verse 24, he begins to transition into that whole issue that I was talking about bearing witness, but building on in that transition, the concept of life and death and judgment as well. Okay. Life, death, and judgment as he begins now to speak concerning resurrection and the power of resurrections and why such power of resurrection which only God can do Jesus says I can do it too the whole idea is continuing to build his case that he is the son of God he is equal with God because he exercises power that only God himself has. Okay. So let's get into 25. And as we get into 25 and the end of this chapter, we're going to build on what I've just told you about the witness to Jesus's claims and statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is 
when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live for just as the father has life in himself. Even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Okay. So now let's talk about it. So again, we have the introduction of the truly, truly, that is Jesus is about to, he's the truly, truly always places emphasis on a statement that Jesus is about to make. All right. And what we see here in this emphatic statement that Jesus is about to make is going to give, uh, I won't, I don't want to say clarity, but it's going to give them the right understanding concerning Jesus and his person. One, one of understanding a belief that they thought was delegated, or should I even say relegated or exercised by God, the father, that is the resurrection from the dead. They believed that it would be God, the father who would resurrect from the dead. Jesus is letting them know it is he who will resurrect all mankind from the dead. Okay. So this is uh, some clarity that they never had, or should I say clarifying a misunderstanding that they had. So truly, truly. So this would be shocking as Jesus is speaking to the people that he will raise the dead by the sound of his voice and note those who hear the voice of the son of God. Now you have to pay attention to the title because Jesus loves to switch the titles, but I'll explain them once again. Remember what I just said, son of God uh, 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 speaks of Jesus as a divine being. He is God. Son of man speaks to Jesus as a human being. And we see both of these titles given here. I'll explain it to you. So as he's working here, he says in 25, an hour is coming, speaking of the future. And then he says, and now is, speaking of a present time. And what is he talking about? The resurrection of the dead. And those who, uh, the dead who are alive will hear the voice of the son of God and live. So what he is talking to now, talking about now is basically physical resurrection from the dead. Now, okay, let me explain because I'm getting even ahead of my own self. Okay, let me bring it down. Break it down one gear. An hour is coming. This future resurrection, and we're not going to, and Jesus did not bother to get into the stages of resurrection because there are a number of stages of resurrection. Say for it, say for say, the first resurrection of the dead is the rapture of the church. You can find that in first Thessalonians, the rapture of the church. When what happens, the dead in Christ shall rise. This is a bodily resurrection. Then the next resurrection of the dead is at the second advent of Jesus. We see that in Revelation chapter 20, when Jesus bodily returns to the earth to rule as king for a thousand years. I'm in Revelation chapter 20. When he begins his reign over the earth, there will be a resurrection of the dead. This is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints along with the resurrection of those saints who died in the tribulation era from the time of the rapture of the church until the second return, that era in there. The resurrection of the saints who died at that time as well as Old Testament saints. 
That's another resurrection of the dead. And then finally, there will be a resurrection of the dead. This is at the very end of Revelations 20, when there is a re resurrection of the wicked dead, by the which all of these, those found in the final resurrection, are in the second death. They are resurrected to eternal damnation. Okay, so the whole point is, there are several resurrections. Jesus is not trying to give clarity on like, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. He's not doing that. He is just simply letting us know he is the one who will be responsible for the resurrection of the dead. And that's the, that's the whole idea about it, right? So that is the resurrection of the future. The resurrection that Jesus said is coming. But then he said, there is a resurrection that now is. Now, that resurrection that now is can be, it can be understood as a spiritual resurrection. That is those people, whomever it is, who hear Jesus's claim who, and, and who he claims to be, that he is the son of God, son of man, puts his faith in Jesus, puts his faith in him. And therefore they are born again, resurrection to eternal life. That's one idea, but it does not seem in the context that that's what Jesus is talking about. The very context is the resurrection to a uh, physical life. So Jesus is not talking about here from the idea of spiritual life. He seems to be maintaining that sense of resurrection in the physical sense. Just like I just told you previously about the resurrection that is coming all of those resurrections spoke of back to physical life again, back to physical life again. So the resurrection that he's talking about that now is seems to presuppose it looks uh, at closely at what's going to happen in the near future. That is, that's why he said the now is during Jesus's ministry, a resurrection of Lazarus. So it seems that Jesus is looking to that particular time. One is a future time, which will be far off from Jesus's time that he's talking about now from Jesus life at that time. The rapture first resurrection is over 2000 years. And then the second coming will be at least seven years. So you're talking about at least 2000, 2007 years, and then a thousand years after that for the final resurrection. Clearly a resurrection that is coming, but now is when Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead, even in this same book, John chapter nine, is it nine or 11? I believe sometimes I get them really confused, but there is the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. So, and I think that's what he's talking about when he says the resurrection that is now is because it holds with the context of physical resurrection. And, but what the point is, the driving point is, this is not a resurrection done by God, the father, the power to give life after death. This is a resurrection done by God, the son. Why? 26, just as the father has life, even so in the same way. So the point is, he is now continued to build his statement of having equality with the father that he is God because he is demonstrating something here. The father can give life to the dead and so can the son. So what does that tell you? If the father 
is the son has the power of the father, then he must be of an equal being with the father, have the same nature of the father. He himself must be God as well. And then he says at the end of verse number 27, here's what's important. And he gave him authority, the, the authority to execute judgment. That is because that is the idea of what happens in the resurrection of the dead. It is an act of judgment and God has given judgment to the son. And simply that is this thing has been delegated by the father. Let me say something that's in my mind. It is such a beautiful thing how Jesus in such few words can express his divine nature, Jesus's own divine nature. He can express his oneness with the father his being with the father, he can express that at the same time he deals with the order of the relationship with the father. What I mean is this. Notice it is always you see the father, the son. All right. In the sense that the father sent the son in the sense of that relationship hierarchy. That is, God is the father and Jesus is the son. That is a relationship hierarchy. And I don't want to get you confused. So let me just simply say it and move on because I was just simply in my own mind marveling at how our Lord does it. This is because of the role that is playing. God, the role that is, he is the father. Jesus rose as the son, the one who is sent by the father, the one who does the will of the father, the one who is obedient to the father. But nevertheless, he still expresses that equality with the father, such as the father is, I am. And he also makes it always clear that the father is not the son. The son is not the father, but that role in which they play in redemption is different. The father is all and over all and the father sends the son. The son is obedient to the father, but nevertheless, once again, the son is equal with the father. All these things Jesus expresses in such a wonderful way. Okay. But now let's back up and go back to where we are. His whole point is just as what he's talking about, resurrection of the dead, having power to give life. So does the son have the same power. And this is simply to say what the son is God, just like the father is God equal with God. Then he said the father final point in this section, cause I don't want to be that long. The father has given the son the authority to, to judge, to, to execute judgment upon the son of man. What he simply means is to judge, to give final judgment for all men. Then he says, for he is, in the text it says, the son of man. However, the Greek text does not have the definite article, the, there. The, the Greek text has, because he is a son of man. And it's important to understand the absence of that definite article because what Jesus is actually saying is this, God the Father has given him the authority to execute judgment over mankind is because he is one of them. And that's the beauty of that point. Notice at the very beginning, verse number 25, They'll hear the voice of what? The son of God, the son of God. 
that that title, I keep telling you again and again, references Jesus' deity. Jesus is God. And notice, as God, he exercises the power of God. And then he says, and this has been decreed by the Father himself because he is also a son of man. That is, he is also a human being. So what Jesus is so beautifully saying here is, Jesus can exercise authority over humanity because he himself comes from the pool of humanity. And Jesus can execute judgment as God in such a precise way, what that is in a righteous way, in a holy way. And he's going to get the judgment right. Why? Because he's God. There's no other way he can get it wrong. God can't do anything wrong. All of God's judgment will be right, will be true because God is just. And so therefore as God, he can rightly and justly judge all of mankind. And because he is a human being himself, is of mankind, he comes from the same family. You know, let me just throw this at you maybe to kind of help you along in understanding it. You know what you say, but you don't know how we feel and you don't know what we go through and you don't understand how it is down here. You don't know what it's like to be one of us. And that's why the Bible said he was tempted in all points, just like we are, but without sin. Yes, he does. So it makes Jesus uniquely qualified to render judgment to us. He understands us. He knows our experiences. And also that unique qualification becomes he is God. He will always judge in righteousness. Okay, enough of that. Beautiful segment. Let's go on. So he says in verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. All right, let's talk about that because a lot of people can get really messed up at that part. So notice now he understands that what he is saying about himself having the power to bring people from the dead to life and he will himself will be the judge of all humanity. He understands that this is making, it's shocking some people like, whoa, 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 you're the judge. You're going to judge us all in the last day. And you, and so Jesus said, don't marvel about this. Why? Because an hour is coming. The bottom line, reemphasizing everybody, all who are in the tombs will stand before him in judgment. Everybody will be judged by Jesus there's no exception. And here he simply says to them, don't even get excited about it because what? That's the way it is. Then he talks about the two groups, the two divisions. Some will be resurrected unto life. Who? Those who have done the good deeds and some will be resurrected unto eternal damnation. Those who did the bad deeds. Now, clarity on what he is saying here. Jesus is not dealing with salvation. You will be saved by what you do. All of the Bible teaches against that. All of the rest of John teaches against that. There is no salvation. We are saved by faith. Ephesians 2 and 8. We are never saved on account of works. 
We are always saved by who we believe. And even later on in the very next chapter, people are going to get into that same issue. Chapter six, what must we, what good thing, what work must we do? And Jesus is going to tell them, believe on him who God has sent. This is the work of salvation. Salvation is never based on what you do. It is always based on faith in him alone. We've been talking about that since the very beginning of John chapter one, especially in John chapter three in Jesus discussion with Nicodemus. All Jesus is simply saying is this in a nutshell. He's generalizing. Jesus is not trying to give principles. It works like this. It works like that. It works like this. It works like that. No, he is simply saying this. This is the idea. Those who have faith in Jesus, those who have saving faith in Jesus, put their trust in Jesus, live in a way that is pleasing to their Lord. That's why the Bible never teaches salvation and faith. And notice when Jesus talks about the obedience to him. If you love me, you keep my commandments. So the keeping of the commandments is an expression of our love and thankfulness to God for our salvation. So what happens? Those who are truly say the book of James that we don't have time to go into. What does James say? Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? Because faith saying that I believe in Jesus without works, but you don't live right is dead. The reason, why Je- the reason why Jesus said what he said is, in- let me say it a more proper way, guys. I'm moving too fast for my own self. Jesus is not expressing any kind of salvation by works. Jesus is simply letting us know that our works are, is a, res- no, works are a result of our true salvation. We do what we do because we have believed, okay? And so what happens? We believe, therefore, good works come from us. Other side of the coin, we disbelieve what happens. Bad works come forth from us. So the bottom line, this is not a statement. Don't confuse this. This is just Jesus speaking in generalities. He's not trying to deal with those theologies at this time. He is dealing with the theology of what? Of himself being God, being able to do the works of God, having the power of resurrection from the dead. That's what he's dealing with. And so he's just simply saying in the resurrection from the dead, he will raise some who will inherit eternal life because of the good works, because they have believed in Jesus Messiahship. And then he will resurrect others who will be the majority. We know why many will be lost in the in the. Uh, when it refers to salvation, okay? The way that leads unto salvation is narrow. Few go in, but the way that leads to destruction is broad and many go into that other side of the coin. Those who are resurrected to eternal damnation because of their evil works. Why? It is a result they did not believe Christ. For if you had believed in Jesus, you would have kept his commandments. You would have lived a godly life. Okay. I think I put too much time into that, but I think you guys understood the main point of Jesus, this uh, resurrection to life because you believed and this belief evidenced itself in good works, resurrection to damnation because you disbelieved in Jesus and therefore you continue to live an ungodly life. And that's his whole point in all of that. All right. Th- 30. 
I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, now this is a transition verse, but before we get into that, I keep putting the cart before the horse. Jesus simply is letting us let them know, he's emphasizing the things that he does. Context here, judgment, the rendering of judgment, whether bringing them to life eternity with him or sending them away eternally into the lake of fire itself. His judgment is not arbitrary. His judgment is based upon the will of the father. So therefore, in doing the will of the father, his judgment will be correct and true because that's what the father is. The father's judgment is correct and true. Therefore, Jesus' judgment will be correct and true. And notice what you cannot help but see here. Again, notice the idea like the father, like the son. What is the whole thing that we're dealing with in the teaching or, or in Jesus' full uh, discussion here? Equality with God. As God is, so the son is. And so here he's simply talking about his will is the will of the father. All right. Now, as 30 forms a transition, Jesus has been doing what? He's been constantly saying, what did they say? You're a man. You're trying to make yourself out to be God. So we want to kill you because you make yourself equal with God. You're not God, are you? All right. So that's really the accusation. And they're angry with him because him doing that. And what has Jesus been doing thus far? He's been making statement point after point, not to bag down from equality with God, but to even affirm that, yes, indeed, I have equality with God. And we're not going to rehearse all of the points that Jesus has made thus far. So now he's about to move. That's why we say verse 30 is a transition verse. I have been making these points about it. Okay. In the Jewish law, the thing, what, 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 what gives uh, 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 affirmation and say, for instance, in a court of law to a person's statement is witnesses. Okay. That's why Moses says in the law, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, either let word, let every word be established. Let me slow it down. When a man, when something is happening in a court of law, you need to have two witnesses in order to affirm or condemn in some way or another. Okay. So two or three witnesses affirms what a person says is true. Either two or at most by three. The idea is the normative case was three. The normative case was three. But two would be the less lesser case, the least that you need in order to bear witness to you. So what Jesus is now about to do is he is about to bring forth witnesses. Okay, witnesses to what? Stay in context as we always do. The whole issue of are you God? Are you equal with God? Remember, to claim equality with God is to make yourself out to be God. Are there any witnesses that affirms this statement, that affirms who you are, Jesus? Are there any witnesses who affirm your claim, your person? And now Jesus is about to give those witnesses. 31. 
If I alone testify about myself, my witness is not, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me and I know that testimony which he gives about me is true. And so now that sets the base. And Jesus is now speaking in a legal sense as per se in a legal court of testimony because there's another uh, place where Jesus says, I think it's in John chapter eight when Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is still true. Jesus is not contradicting himself. When he makes that statement, the atmosphere uh, uh, of those two particular statements are just different. That is, as he speaks here in John chapter five, Jigo speaks with a legal atmosphere as per se in a court, in a court. If a person says something in a court setting, you need two or three witnesses. OK, if the person is the only witness to himself, it's not valid. You need other witnesses. So Jesus speaking from a legalistic point of view, from a forensic type point of view in a court. When he gets to John chapter eight, I believe that's where he made the statement. He is simply speaking when he says, if he bears witness of himself, it is still true. He is speaking from the perspective of no one knows you better and no one knows your own motives better than you. That is from the personal sense. So one is a legal statement. The other is basically a personal statement. All right. And you need to understand the difference of it. Law of Moses is speaking from the legal perspective. All right. So now let's go into what he's just simply said. He is preparing us for the witnesses. What witness? Let us stay in context to his person. And if you witness to Jesus's person, you are also witnessing to his claim. And what is the claim of Jesus here? He is equal with God. And if one is equal with God, one must be God. All right. With all of that. So now let's look at the witnesses that Jesus spoke of to himself. 33, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a lamp that was burning and shining, was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Okay, so now the first witness that Jesus gives to himself, ultimately, which will witness to his claim of divinity, is John. And John did witness, I believe it's in chapter what, three? Chapter three or chapter four in the chapter three or four, four, I believe it was in the final testimony of God. When John the Baptist called him the son of God again, remember the titles. OK, but anyway, Jesus says John bore witness to him. So that's num that's witness number one. What did Moses say? Two or three witness. That's number one. John the Baptist. And so then after Jesus said that John the Baptist witness of him, he made the statement of not needing a witness from me. He said, okay, even though John did speak of me, this really, if you'll let me say it this way, for Jesus, this really was the lowest form of witness. I don't need John to witness about me, but nevertheless, he did. And even though John is just a man. And then he said, but why do you bring up John? He said, but I say this because so that you may be saved. Why? John pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. John was, his whole purpose was to identify 
the coming Messiah, and that those who John, that one who John identified as the Messiah, the people should put their faith in him. So therefore, apart from putting your faith in Jesus, you cannot be saved. So Jesus pointed out John two causes, right? Number one, he did witness to Jesus' person and his claim. And then number two, he did it so that people can be saved. Why? Because you got to put your faith in Jesus, the one who John pointed out. And he just simply reminded them that John was a burning lamp. John had a very fervent, uh, 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 fervent and uh, wonderful ministry that the people were really excited about for a while, okay, for a while. That's what I mean. You uh, you were willing to rejoice a while in his life. They, they didn't completely receive John, but John caused a lot of excitement uh, amongst the Jewish people. And John uh, stirred in their minds the messianic hope was amongst them. In other words, the time for the Messiah, the for the Messiah to come, it was now, and John stirred that thing up inside of people. Some believed in the preaching of John, many did not, especially the religious leaders. They rejected John and his preaching, ultimately rejecting Jesus, the one whom John pointed to. Okay, but nevertheless, back in the context, Jesus is, I don't witness alone of myself, legalistic sense. John the Baptist witnessed of me. Then he continued, verse number 36, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Okay, the next witness, witness number two, the works that Jesus does, that is, the signs and wonders, the miraculous things bear witness to Jesus, to his person and to his claim. What? Remember the whole idea of doing miracles and signs and wonders. There is the person that is that person. That person makes a claim or a statement or claims or statements. The miraculous works simply says by these things, you know, I am who I say I am. And by me doing these things, you know that what I have been saying is the truth. So therefore, the miraculous works that Jesus does is a witness to his person as well as his claim. Stay in the context. What is the claim? Are you equal with God? Are you God? He says, what does my work say? And even so, what? These works are not simply the works I have chosen to do. Notice once again how he ties so closely himself with the Father. These are the works that the Father has sent me to do. So again, that you, you can't miss that equality with God and at the same time how close he keeps putting himself with the Father, but they're not the same kind. That whole Shinnok, if you'll let me say it that way, of being on par with the Father. But the whole point is, and it's the Father who sent me that sent me also to do these works. And what do these works do? They are witness number two, 37. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. 
You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. Now that is a thick statement. And, it, and I have a bit of confusion on certain parts on just un, trying to understand what Jesus is trying to say. But now let's tackle it and see it. So the third witness is the father. Okay. So the first witness, John the Baptist, Jesus says, that's the weakest of witness. The next witness, even better than that, greater than John the Baptist, the works, the miraculous works. And now the third witness, what did Moses say? Two or three witnesses is now the father and the father testified. Notice Jesus likes to do the father who sent me. He keeps tying himself on again. The whole cloud of equality with God, not a cloud of confusion, but a cloud that encompasses the idea of equality with God. The father who sent me, he bears witness, testifies of me. And then he begins to say, and they have nothing to do with the father. But the statement that he made, neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Now, both statements are practically true. They, the, the audience that Jesus is speaking to, have never heard God's voice, and they have never seen God's form. But what does Jesus mean? Does he mean literally to hear the voice and literally to see his form? Uh, uh, Yes. Could he mean more? Yes. Yes. And, and the context lets us know he means more. That's why it could seem confusing because he said, well, God didn't have a form. True. God is spirit. God is a spirit being. God does not have physical form. And there is, to my knowledge, no evidence in all of scripture where God, the father, ever took any physical form. It always seems in scripture, God maintains his spiritual form at all times. That is, he is omnipresent everywhere. This, in other, okay, that's the idea. But okay, okay. But his spirit form, let me basically say it that way. So we won't get into any danger. But he maintains that. So, but Jesus, so that statement of neither seeing his form is true too. But the whole point seems to be not so much in just the hearing of the voice or the seeing, seeing of the form, but what? The latter part, 38, you don't have his word abiding in you. You see, the word of God encompasses the person of God. In, oh, it's a beautiful, isn't that beautiful? You don't have his word. The word of God encompasses his form of God. So there is a relationship of God, or should I say of God and his word. And that is what they are lacking. So let me say it that way. I'll come to something else later. What are they lacking? The word of God. They don't understand rightly the word of God as well as they don't receive nor practice, it, practice the word of God. The word, his word is not in you, even though now, if you asked them, they would think, yes, indeed, his word was in them. Jesus giving them the contrary truth of the matter. No, you have nothing to do with the father. Why? Why? Because you don't believe the one whom the father has sent. The word of God is not abiding in you because you don't believe the one that God has sent. Who is the one that God has sent? 
Jesus. And here's what I want to say. And who is Jesus? Notice. The word of God, the father ain't in you. You have nothing to do with the father because what? You don't believe his word. What you mean you don't believe his word? Why can you say you don't believe his word? Because you don't believe me. You don't believe me who the one God has sent. Who is Jesus? The one that God has sent. Turn to John one and one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh, Jesus. So notice how the word of God ties with God himself and the word of God ties directly with Jesus himself. He is the living and now he is, but especially, especially in that time, he is that living, breathing word of God. And Jesus is saying, you don't have the word of God. Why? Because you reject the one that God has sent, who is the word himself. But again, the major point is in context, the father is a witness. So you have what? John the Baptist again in our rehearsal. We have the works that Jesus does by the uh, will of the father. And now we have the father himself. Okay. And seeing of the father could be talking about all the ways that God has made himself known. So that is the third witness. Remember Moses says what? Two or three witnesses. Notice Jesus continues verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Stopping there. So now Jesus gives a fourth witness. So what Jesus is giving is a preponderance of witnesses. What has he done earlier? Earlier in his statements that he laid down as facts. He has, give, he has given a preponderance of evidence. The father has power of life and death. I have power of life and death. The father has power of judgment, but he has committed that judgment to the son. I have the judgment. I was sentenced to either eternal life or I was sentenced to eternal damnation. Why has the father done all of these things? So that all may glory, may honor the son, just like they honor the father. Preponderance of facts. And now he gives preponderance of witnesses. What? John the Baptist has witnessed to me and to my claim and to my statements. The works that I do have witnessed. The father himself has witnessed. And now what? Even the scriptures witness. So as he has given a preponderance of evidence in his factual statements, he has given a preponderance of witnesses to his person as well as his claim. Now he says what? Even the scriptures themselves speak about me as well as my claim to who I am. The scriptures as a whole speak of me. Okay, but then he says, and, even, and these very scriptures, speaking especially to the religious leaders, for they believe that if a person truly understood the scriptures, they could have eternal life. That's why they said later on, maybe I think it's in John chapter six, 
they had a negative view concerning the common people. And they even made a statement like these people who do not understand the scriptures are cursed. They are cursed. So they believe that if you didn't understand this Old Testament scriptures, that it, and when I say the Old Testament and all of it, you did not have, you were cursed. That's the whole idea. You were just simply cursed. So they looked at it in a very negative way. My whole point, Jesus' point here is this. They have searched the scriptures because they believe with this understanding in the scripture that they could have eternal life. That's why Jesus said, you search them. Why? Because you think you'll have eternal life. And it was not so much hooked in the obedience, more so in their thinking, as it was simply in the preservation of his knowledge, in the attaining of his knowledge. He says, but the whole point is, these very scriptures that you are studying are a witness about me. Now, Jesus is not talking about one particular passage. Uh, say, for instance, like the Deuteronomy 18, where Moses talked about a prophet that God will give you likened unto me. But Jesus is talking about all of it. From Genesis 3 and 15, it speaks of me. From Genesis chapter 22, it speaks of me. For the prophets speak of me. Isaiah 35 speaks of me. And on and on and on, the scriptures speak of me about the one. Malachi speaks of me. Uh, Jeremiah speaks of me. These things you have studied because you believe you have life. But the whole point is, all of it, in some way or another, ends up speaking about the coming Messiah and are able to identify me. But he says, there's a problem. What? You are unwilling to come to me so you can have life. Even though the scriptures do point to Jesus, they should have been able to recognize Jesus. But in their hostility, they did not want to come to Jesus. And therefore, the very thing that they were hoping that studying the scriptures by these things, they would have life. The scriptures pointing to Jesus by the very thing that they set their hope in, they would not find a realization of their hope. They would not have life. You didn't believe on the one who pointed to Jesus. Okay, so now, what do we have? Jesus just given us a preponderance of witnesses. In other words, I am just not simply making a statement and a claim about myself. There are others who bear witness to me, therefore upholding my claim and therefore affirming my statement. And those witnesses, John the Baptist, the works that I do, the Father, and the scriptures. I have satisfied the requirement, the legal requirement of witness. Moses said what? Two or three witnesses, I have now given you four. All right, so now let's continue on with the very idea of their rejection of Jesus in the sense of not receiving him, even though he, those, you have the witnesses that speak of him. You have the works that speak of him. And Jesus has given them all of this factual evidence. So let's continue on now with this whole issue of now in their rejection of Jesus, right? Verse 41. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. And so Jesus said, you know what the root of the problem is? The root of the problem is I do not seek the glory of men. And the whole idea is like you do. I don't look for the praises of men. I don't want to be brought into the special religious club of men, namely your club. I will not be a Pharisee. I will not. And remember, now you have to keep in mind but the thing that I talked about. Uh, in, what was it? John chapter four. John, no, it's the beginning of John chapter five. So look at the beginning of that. What the expectation was of the Pharisees for the Messiah. One who would be the Messiah, they expected, to be one of them, to build up the hedges, to, to, to create all of these additional rules and laws, and not just simply live by the law of Moses, but to be like a Pharisee. And that way, and for, for that reason, to be celebrated by the Pharisees and to be uh, appraised by the Pharisees. And so that's what Jesus is basically saying here. He says, I don't have to receive the glory from men, from you. Why? You are not concerned about what God desires. The love of God is not your ultimate concern. The love, of, the praise of God is not your ultimate concern. What you are more concerned with is the praise of men. And this is not something I'm concerned with at all. And this is one of the leading causes of your rejection of me. I come in my father's name. He said, but you know what? If somebody else, in other words, I come in my father's name. I come seeking the praise of my father. I come seeking and giving all the glory to my father. But if you, if another man should come in self aggrandizement, building up himself, building up your club, building up men, you would readily accept that. That's why Jesus again say, you don't have the love of God in yourselves. What you have in yourself is pride and pride is always rejected by God. And that's what Jesus basically is talking about here. But anyway, so he says, whole point, you cannot believe. You can neither believe what Jesus says about himself you can neither believe that Jesus is truly who he says that he is when all you are seeking is the praise of men, is to be in the social clubs of men. You seek what? Glory from one another instead of the glory that comes from God. Because if you set your mind, if you guys, as Jesus talking to that audience, had set your mind to believing the scripture, and what the scriptures had said, you would have been able to identify me. You would have believed in me. You would have believed in the Father. You would have believed in my works. You would have believed in the message of John. But you will know why? You reject all of these things because it doesn't give you glory. Okay, enough said. Let's move on and close out the chapter. Do not think that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how would you believe my words? I like that. Okay. 
So now he begins to say, talks about accusation and he throws a sharp uh, uh, object into their teeth. So he says, what? I'm not going to be the one to accuse you, but it's Moses. What you have to understand is this. They considered themselves to be loyal followers of Moses. Loyal. We, as they said in one place in the scriptures, we are Moses disciples and they took great pride in that. But Jesus is letting you know, you may think, letting them know, you may think that you are truly Moses disciples, but truly, truly, these are my words. I say to you, you are not Moses disciples. Why? I'm not going to accuse you, but the very Moses who you take to be your leader, who you set your trust in, Moses will accuse you. Now, Jesus is not speaking so much of Moses as a person, but of the words written by Moses. And we know those words come where? In what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So what does he say? Moses, that you set your hope. We're going to hope. Hope in Moses, hope in the law of Moses. Our hope and our trust is in the law. Again, reflecting back to what? The scriptures, believing what? You believe that you have life in the scriptures. The books of Moses, scriptures. You believe you have life in the words, in the scripture that Moses himself has written. You got it? And so that's what he's trying to say. So you believe that, but you are not following that. Remember what he says. These things literally point to me, to my person, to my claim. You reject that. And so also you reject Moses' writing. And this is what the whole hope of them was. Moses was everything to them. But you reject Moses and you reject why? Because you reject what he wrote. What he wrote about whom? About me. And that's the whole point. All of this stuff, once again, me, my person, and my claim. Context claim to be God. But let's finish this whole thing out. Since you reject, since Moses is going to accuse you, why? Moses said, even explicitly, one is coming, a prophet like unto myself. Now, this is that Deuteronomy passage. And when he come, you obey him. The Deuteronomy 18 and 15 passage. But even other passages that Moses shadowed, again, like what? Genesis 3 and 15, the Genesis 22, the seed that is coming who will receive the land. And that is in the singular. And we don't have time to get into all of that. But Moses pointed to him on several occasions. And Jesus said, by this, Moses will accuse you because you failed what? To hear his word. And the word was to believe in me. So he finishes by saying this. And if you do not believe his writings, you will not believe my word. Now that's strong. What is Jesus saying here? If the writings of Moses, what is the writing of Moses? Scripture itself. It is the holy, unbreakable, inerrant word of God. That's the writing of Moses. And you don't believe that the writing of Moses that came from God. Even scripture would say how God spoke to Moses and how in God speaking to Moses, he would write, he would teach, he would say unto the sons of Israel by the word and voice of God, sacred scripture. 
And if you, Jesus said, do not believe in Moses in the writings of the sacred scripture from God, and Moses wrote about me, I already know you sure ain't going to believe my simple words. And I say it's simple to just <laughs> emphasize what Jesus is trying to say. If you don't believe the writings of Moses, the scripture, you will not believe what I am saying to you today. And what is the claim? Messiah, son of God, one who is equal with God. Okay. All right. That's enough. I got excited for long enough. We now conclude chapter five. And overall, let's just simply take a look at what happened from a nutshell. We see Jesus arriving in Jerusalem to a place at a pool, Bethesda. He heals a man and gives him an odd command. Take up your pallet and walk. He knew that this would be controversial because of the, the religious leaders' false belief concerning about what is work and what is not work on the Sabbath day. Jesus used this Sabbath day engagement of talk with the leaders to make a statement by claiming God to be his father. My father is continuing to work. I do too. He knew that this would cause a problem because in calling God his personal father in this way, he was making a claim of equality with God. To have equality with God means you are God. And this allowed Jesus with this controversy. The people got angry enough to kill him. First, they were hot because he did his stuff on the Sabbath. Then they got even angry and wanted to kill him because he was now calling himself God. Then Jesus, instead of backing down, we begin to give foundational point after point after point saying, indeed, I am God. The father's love for the son and what he allows the son to do. The father's power and what the father can do, how the son can do. And what we saw point after point, Jesus kept saying, just as the father had, so does the son. Then the power of resurrection of the dead, such as the father can do. No, indeed, he's delegated this to the son. The son has the power to resurrect the dead as well. He gives foundational point. And then Jesus said, okay, I have made all of these claims concerning myself. And these are indeed statement and factual claim. So the idea from a legalistic point, what witnesses do you have to, to bear up your claim, to bear witness to your claim, to your person that you claim to be and the things that you claim to do? Jesus said, I got four witnesses I can give you. Moses said, for us to give us two or three. But listen to this. I have John the Baptist. I have the works that I do from the father who sent me. I have the father himself. Finally, I have the scriptures that bear witness to me and my claim. He said, but you know, the problem is even though the scriptures do bear witness and you have all of these witnesses, you will not come to me and believe so that you can live. And in, fi in finality, he says, but you know what? You put your hopes in Moses. You put all of your hopes that we are Moses' disciples. We believe the writings of Moses. But don't you understand that Moses spoke of me? But the problem is you really don't believe in Moses' writings. You really don't believe in Moses. And you really are not Moses' disciples. Because if you believe in Moses like you say, you will believe in me. But guess what? 
I know since you do not believe in Moses' writings, the great sacred scriptures that come from the Lord, I sure know you won't believe my mere words. So therefore, no matter how much I might give proof to my messiahship, proof that I am equal with God, proof that I am God, it's just not in you to believe. <laughs> so we end chapter five. And this was one of Jesus in the book of John's first controversial encounters in the claim that he is God. And again, once again, this goes back to the thesis of John's gospel itself. What? In the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and what? This word expressed God the Father. So the whole idea of John, Jesus is God, and he proves that. And this is one of our first great arguments in seeing Jesus' claim that he is a divine person. All right. Thanks for joining me with that. I hope we weren't too long with it. But once again, remember, if these lessons have been a blessing to you, if you can say, Pastor Lee, thank you so much. Thank you for the clarity and blah, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet. Thank you. It's my job to do it, saints. So I don't get the big head about foolishness like that. That's my job. And always remember, God hates pride. Whatever gift that you have, it is given by God and it is given so you can do what God sent you to do. You do that, sit your tail down and tell God, thank you. And that's my mindset. But nevertheless, if you do say, Pastor Lee, thank you for that. And God so blesses and touches your heart. I ask you to support this ministry. There's always a link in the description that shows how you can support this ministry and help me, help me along the way. Kind of do me like uh, 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 those guys did Moses when they both stood on one side and the other side and they held up Moses' hands until the war was won. Hold up my hands in the ministry so we can continue to bring these lessons to you. Okay, but join me next week when we begin to get into John chapter six and we deal with another instance of a couple of miraculous things that Jesus does. He's gonna do the bread miracle, he's gonna do the walking on the miracle, but once again, it's going to speak to a claim from these two miracles that Jesus is doing to do, is going to speak to a claim, a word from his mouth stating once again his divine personage, that Jesus is God. Only God can do these. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because I don't want to get into it. Just join me next time. See you then.